defeated. What a wonderful truth that is, that our life is hidden with Christ on high. That he is our perfect spotless righteousness. And that Christ has made us righteous. And that when God looks upon us, he sees not those sins which we daily commit, but sees instead that righteousness of Christ Jesus. What a blessing it is. Our text this morning is Ruth chapter 1, verses 19 to 22, as we finish the first chapter of the book of Ruth. You will recall that when we left Ruth and Naomi, they had been on the road from Moab to Bethlehem and had stopped along with Orpah. And and Naomi had bid her daughters-in-law that they turn back to their own people and to their own gods. And Orpah did just that, but Ruth refused to. She clung to her and committed that she would be faithful in following the God of Naomi. That she would see that that God would be her own God and that Naomi's people, that is the people of God, would become Ruth's people as well. This outsider, this Moabite, now clung to Naomi and clung, more importantly, to her God, that she might be a member of the covenant people of God as well. That is where we pick up in verse 19. Follow along as I read. This is the inspired word of God. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. The Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? When the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Our Lord, speak to us now, we pray. Show us your gospel truth in your word. Help us to see your faithfulness, your holiness, your righteousness, your graciousness, and most of all, your steadfast love for those who you have called to be your own. Because you are a God of steadfast love and because we are your people, we trust that you will indeed move in our midst, quicken our hearts, give us eyes to see and ears to hear, and speak to us now. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. God's providence 
can at times be extremely sweet, can it not? I think of God's governing over my life and some of the times that have been most wonderfully sweet. I think of getting married. I think of having children. I think of joyful occasions that have occurred in my life. And on those occasions, there is no question, God's providence is extremely sweet. But any of us who have lived even a short life have realized that God's providence is not always sweet, is it? We can watch the news and see bitter events occurring daily. We can just consider our own lives, can't we? And it's all too easy, for they are all too familiar. These bitter events that come our way, and we realize that God's providence can be bitter. In this passage we look at this morning, we see discussion of bitterness. For Naomi says to the women when she returns, don't call me Naomi, a word which means pleasant. Call me instead Mara, which means bitter. She says, don't call me pleasant. That's a farce to call me pleasant, for I am not pleasant. Call me bitter. She knows all too well the bitter providence of God. And that's what we're going to look at this morning, God's bitter providence. We want to look at specifically the workings of God's bitter providence. We want to see our response to God's bitter providence. And we want to understand better the results of God's bitter providence. And so first of all, I guess it's important that we understand what we mean when we say providence. The Westminster Divines in the Shorter Catechism, question number 11, asked, what are God's works of providence? And the answer they gave is, God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. That's a pretty broad statement, isn't it? It's his his powerful preserving and governing of all his creatures and all their actions. Tell me what you can think of that God did not create. And tell me what actions exist beyond those actions. There are none. God's providence is his control over all things. I like the way they put it in an earlier question in the shorter catechism where where it speaks of God's decrees. His decrees and his providence go hand in hand. They say, what are the decrees of God? The answer is, the decrees of God are his eternal purpose according to the counsel of his will, whereby for his own glory he hath foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. Sometimes those things that come to pass are bitter. There are those who would tell us, usually we hear this uh, perhaps on, on, on far too many 
televangelists, TV preachers, even even in many other churches, but, but it seems that almost the majority of preachers you'll see on TV have what we could term a prosperity gospel. A gospel that really is no gospel at all. A gospel that says, you know, if you will just have faith, if you will just trust God, then everything will be good for you. You'll just have all kinds of joy, all sorts of blessing. Everything will be uh, financially secure for you. You're, you'll be healthy. Uh, and, and if you are having troubles in those areas of your life, it's simply because you don't have enough faith. But this is not what the Bible says. In fact, in Psalm 34, 19, God promises exactly the opposite. He says, many are the afflictions of the righteous. Righteousness does not get us away from affliction, but rather he says, many are the afflictions of the righteous. And our Lord himself says in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely for my account. We, we don't think in that way, do we? We don't think of those types of things as being a conduit to blessing. Our natural response is to think in lines with the prosperity gospel preachers that, that if God is pleased with us, if we're doing the right things, then he's just going to shower us with an easy life. And everything will go smoothly. And if we have any hiccups along the way and things are difficult, it's surely because of a, a certain sin in our life. And if we just take care of that, then we'll be back on the road to, to prosperity again. But Scripture speaks quite clearly about this. In John 9, we see the example of Jesus as he's walking along a road. It says, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth and his disciples, his disciples who thought much like we might be prone to, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered them, it was not that this man sinned, nor his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now don't get me wrong, Jesus is not saying, nope, this man never sinned and neither did his parents. He's not saying that. Of course they had sinned. But what he is saying is, the reason this man is blind has nothing to do with the sins he has committed or with the sins his parents committed. It is so that the glory of God might be displayed in him. For that is what our lives are all about, is it not? We say this quite often, that first question from the Shorter Catechism. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. That is what our purpose in life is. That is what our function in life is. It is what we are made for. It is what God desires and what he intends, even in the midst of of the bitterness that we experience, that we would glorify God and enjoy him even when we don't enjoy our circumstances. There's no simple equation that correlates sin with suffering other than this. There is a connection for in the garden before there was sin, there was no suffering. All was perfect. 
And in the absence of sin, there was no suffering. And so, on a certain level, we can say, yes, all of my suffering is due to sin. It is tied to sin. It is a result of sin. It is a result of that sin in the garden through which all of creation fell. And we can take some joy in the fact that there will not always be sin. And as a result, there will not always be suffering. But the reality is we still have this suffering now. We need to know, though, that, that even, even as suffering is not always, you know, it's not God's retribution for our sin and specific actions, that God is working through that sin, through the suffering, through the bitterness, through the difficulties. He is at work even in those things. And Naomi knew that. In verse 20 we see, she says, the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. You know, she, she doesn't ask, where was God in the midst of these difficult situations? Where was God when my husband died? Where was God when my two little boys died? Where was God way back when we had the famine that caused us to relocate? Where was God? She doesn't ask any of these questions. She realizes, she knows, and rightly so, that God's hand was upon her in all those situations. And that God was at work even in the midst of all those terrible tragedies. For she uses the name for him here, El Shaddai in Hebrew. It essentially means God Almighty. The God who is all-powerful. The God who is in control of all things. The God who lets nothing out of his grasp. That is the one who has done this, she says. He has dealt very bitterly with me. Now some of us would like to remove God from the equation when we have these sufferings. We say God didn't have a hand in that. Because we feel like we're somehow uh, doing him a favor by letting him off the hook there. But how much worse is it? If God doesn't have a hand in any of that, if our sufferings occurred because God couldn't restrain them, because God couldn't keep us from them, that is far worse, my friends, far worse if God was unable to keep us from suffering. For if that is the case, then we have no one to pray to, no one to deliver us, no one to seek aid from. But this is not the case. He is indeed, as Naomi proclaims, God Almighty. But he is not just God Almighty. He is a God of steadfast love. And as a God of steadfast love, he will deliver us. He will lift us up. He will enable us to endure where we thought we surely could not have ever endured. Have you ever had that experience? I'm sure you have. I have, and I've talked to many people who have, who have seen a friend or a family member, or a fellow church member, or somebody go through something that is absolutely just unfathomable. They just, it's the type of sadness and sorrow and grief and mourning that they've had to endure is something that you can't imagine. And you say, 
I can't imagine going through what you've gone through. I, I don't think I could do it. We've all had that kind of experience, haven't we? Where we've said that to somebody, I don't think I could go through what you've gone through. And the reality is, you're right. You couldn't. And neither could they. Apart from the grace of God. But God is a God of steadfast love. And so he gives out grace to us for those situations. He doesn't deal in what I like to call hypothetical grace. He doesn't give us grace for some situation that we'll never have to face. He gives us grace for the situations that he brings our way. He sets us along a road, traveling down a path. And then he gives us the grace that is necessary for us to travel down that path. It's not our strength that sees us through, but his. Even so, the path can be a bitter, bitter path. So the question is, how do we respond to God's providence? There are right ways and wrong ways to respond to God's bitter providence. And with Naomi, I think it's the same as with most of us. It's kind of a mix of right and wrong ways. We need to be careful. I think far too commonly we we think in terms of kind of the good guys and the bad guys, and we'll read a Bible story, for instance, and we'll say, well, is this person a good guy or a bad guy? And if they're the good guy, then everything they do is right. And if they're the bad guy, then everything they do is wrong. But the reality is that people in the Bible, like people in the real world, that we deal with every day, are a complex, complex mix of good and evil, of right and wrong. And so it is with Naomi here. I think that that what we see in, in her, what, what one of the warnings we see in her is that we want to avoid becoming embittered by God's bitter providence. We don't want to become bitter ourselves. For bitterness accentuates the bad things and it causes us not to see the good. Have we all had that experience? I'm sure we have. I know I have. In the midst of bitter circumstances, I, I just forget about the good things. And I dwell on the bad things. Notice what she says in verse 21. She says, I went away full and the Lord brought me back empty. Now that's not altogether true, is that? When she went away, it wasn't in a state of fullness that she went away. She went away hungry. She went away because they were starving, because they had no food, and they had to leave family and friends and neighbors and loved ones behind. It was a hard thing when they went away. They didn't just go out on a vacation. They had to leave their homes looking for food elsewhere. It was a difficult thing when they went away. But we do that sometimes. We don't remember the bads. You know, it's so bad now that things back there, back in the golden age... It was everything was perfect back then. We do that, don't we? We need to be careful not to do that, not to have that grass is always greener chronology, thinking that it was so much better back then. Certainly, there might have been better things back then. But it wasn't perfect back then either, was it? And she says, I went away full, and the Lord brought me back empty. Now, is that... Strictly accurate? Did she come back empty with nothing? She's saying, you know, and I come back now and I've got nothing. Well, that's not 
really true either, is it? Right and wrong. And so as with Naomi here, I think that that what we see in, in her, what, what one of the warnings we see in her is that we want to avoid becoming embittered by God's bitter providence. We don't want to become bitter ourselves. For bitterness accentuates the bad things and it causes us not to see the good. Have we all had that experience? I'm sure we have. I know I have. In the midst of bitter circumstances, I, I just forget about the good things. And I dwell on the bad things. Notice what she says in verse 21. She says, I went away full and the Lord brought me back empty. Now that's not altogether true, is that? When she went away, it wasn't in a state of fullness that she went away. She went away hungry. She went away because they were starving, because they had no food, and they had to leave family and friends and neighbors and loved ones behind. It was a hard thing when they went away. They didn't just go out on a vacation. They had to leave their homes looking for food elsewhere. It was a difficult thing when they went away. But we do that sometimes. We don't remember the bads. You know, it's so bad now that things back there, back in the golden age... It was everything was perfect back then. We do that, don't we? We need to be careful not to do that, not to have that grass is always greener chronology, thinking that it was so much better back then. Certainly, there might have been better things back then. But it wasn't perfect back then either, was it? And she says, I went away full, and the Lord brought me back empty. Now, is that... Strictly accurate? Did she come back empty with nothing? She's saying, you know, and I come back now and I've got nothing. Well, that's not really true either, is it? For in the verses right before this, on that road between Moab and Bethlehem, Ruth has pledged her support to her, her undying love, her faithfulness to walk with her in life to stand with her, to help support her, to be God's blessing to her. And yet Naomi says, the Lord has brought me back empty. God has whispered his words of faithful comfort and steadfast love to Naomi. And in the midst of her pain, in the midst of her sorrow, in the midst of bitter circumstances, that whisper's hard to hear. It's hard to hear, isn't it? And so even with Ruth standing here beside her, Ruth whose very name means comfort, Naomi says, I've been brought back empty. We sometimes fail to recognize God's blessings when they're right before us, don't we? We fail to see them. We fail to hear his voice. And as I thought about this this week, it occurred to me that we need to each be constantly in prayer. Asking God, what are those blessings that you have poured out in my life that I am blind to? What are those things that I just take for granted? That I just, I just assume and don't appreciate? 
What are those blessings that you shower out on me daily? And I fail to give thanks for. I fail to even realize that they are blessings. We each need to be praying that prayer constantly, asking God about that. At the same time, there's something very refreshingly honest about Naomi, is there not? You know, she, she says, the, the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. You know, I, I think it's kind of a common greeting. You walk up to somebody and say, how are you doing today? And 99.999 times out of 100, they're going to say, huh, doing okay, or something along those lines. And the reality is, many times they are not doing okay. They are not doing okay at all. Naomi doesn't do that. Hey, Naomi, how are you doing? Well, the Lord's dealt bitterly with me. That's not the response you're kind of expecting at that point, is it? But it's refreshingly honest, isn't it? And it's the kind of openness and honesty that we should have with one another within the body of Christ. We should not deny our feelings. We should not deny how we feel, but we should share those things with one another. We should be open and honest and transparent with one another so that we can bear one another's burdens, so that we can support one another, so that we can be a strength for one another. Far too often I hear people say things where, where they, they just don't want to trouble. I don't want to be a trouble to somebody. I don't want to be a burden to somebody. Uh, we, we have, for instance, this is something. We have a transportation ministry here at church, specifically for bringing people here who aren't able to get here with themselves. And I talk to people all the time who say, you know, I'd love to be in church, but I, I just can't. I can't drive anymore. I can't get here. And I tell them, well, we have a transportation ministry. They'd be more than happy to come pick you up. And they say, well, I don't want to be a trouble. I don't want to be a bother. And, and people do that all the time. And we need to realize that within the body of Christ, within this community that is to live together, we, we are not being a bother when we lean on somebody. And when we refuse to lean on others, we are, we are robbing others of the opportunity to serve Christ Jesus in the way that they have been appointed. We are robbing others of the opportunity that they have to use their gifts to the glory of God. And so it is that we need to be more honest like Naomi. When we have troubles, when we have bitterness, we need to share those things with others. And then the question becomes, well, then how do we respond, right? How do we rightly respond when somebody shares their bitterness with us, when they share their difficulties? Well, it's not by spouting off trite little phrases. Well, God won't give you more than you can handle. Or, or it all works out in the end and, and it'll all be okay. That's not the way to do it. Proverbs 25.20 says, Whoever sings songs to a heavy heart is like one who takes off a garment on a cold day. You see, when, when somebody's heart is heavy, they don't need you to be singing songs to them. What they need is someone to come alongside them, to hear them, to be with them, to listen to them, to be the presence of of God in their midst. Romans 12:15 says rejoice with those who rejoice, but mourn 
with those who mourn. For if one member suffers, 1 Corinthians 12 tells us, all suffer together. And there is suffering. Don't believe the lie that says God won't give you more than you can handle. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 8, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. And then he goes on in talking about that affliction and says, We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. This is the Apostle Paul here. This is the Apostle Paul. And he says we were so burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. If he can experience such things, surely so can we. Let us be the hands and feet and heart of God in the midst of a community where people can share such burdens with one another and we can support them. We can pray for them. We can bring a meal to them. We can sit and just be with them silently even if that is what is called for. Let us be such people responding to the bitterness in the midst of affliction even when we don't see what God is doing, even when we don't know what God is doing, let us know that God is at work because he is a gracious God. He's a gracious God who has sent his son to die for us, to experience the greatest of bitterness. And so we know that our afflictions are only momentary and temporary and that they are preparing us for a glory that we can hardly express. For that is the result of God's bitter providence. The pathway that he puts us on often is bitter with Naomi. It was indeed a bitter path. Maybe it is for you too this morning. Maybe you're thinking the path that I am on is a bitter path. And why would a God of sovereign and steadfast love place me on such a path? Well, there are many reasons he does this. Sometimes our sufferings are the black velvet backdrop against which the multifaceted diamond of the gospel of grace gloriously sparkles and shines. ...of life itself. If he can experience such things, surely so can we. Let us be the hands and feet and heart of God in the midst of a community where people can share such burdens with one another and we can support them. We can pray for them. We can bring a meal to them. We can sit and just be with them silently even if that is what is called for. Let us be such people responding to the bitterness in the midst of affliction even when we don't see what God is doing even when we don't know what God is doing let us know that God is at work because he is a gracious God he's a gracious God who has sent his son 
to die for us, to experience the greatest of bitterness. And so we know that our afflictions are only momentary and temporary, and that they are preparing us for a glory that we can hardly express. For that is the result of God's bitter providence. The pathway that he puts us on often is bitter with Naomi. It was indeed a bitter path. Maybe it is for you too this morning. Maybe you're thinking the path that I am on is a bitter path. And why would a God of sovereign and steadfast love place me on such a path? Well, there are many reasons he does this. Sometimes our sufferings are the black velvet backdrop against which the multifaceted diamond of the gospel of grace gloriously sparkles and shines. Sometimes we can't see it in the midst of our bitterness, but God is teaching us lessons. That as we get to the end of our road, we will turn around and look back and say, aha, I understand now. Or perhaps we won't. Perhaps we'll never see the reason why. But we are called to just trust God. Sometimes it's not about us at all. Sometimes it's about somebody else. We, we so often think about, well, what is God doing for me here? What is he doing to me here? It's all about me, 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 me. But in reality, oftentimes he's doing something in the life of somebody else and we endure suffering so that he might do something in the lives of someone else. Sinclair Ferguson puts it this way. He says, frequently God's hand is placed on the sufferings and trials of an individual in order for his grip to take hold of someone else. So true, so true, and most true, of course, in the example of Christ Jesus. For when he took on human flesh, And when he endured crucifixion, he did not do that so that he could learn a lesson. He did not do that to make him a better person. He did that for us. He did that that he might absorb the wrath of God that we deserved and that we might be pardoned for our sin. Remember in the garden, As Jesus prayed, he said, Father, if it be possible, may this cup, this cup of judgment and wrath pass by me. May that happen. May this cup pass by me. But even so, not my will, but yours be done. And of course, it was not the will of the Father that that cup would pass by. But Christ Jesus instead drank the cup, that bitter cup of God's judgment and wrath. And he drank it till it was emptied all the way to the dregs, till there was no wrath remaining for us. God's wrath completely consumed by Christ Jesus on the cross that we might be made whole and that we might be made holy. That is ultimately the result of God.